You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. And the very last Sunday of a series that we've entitled The Story of God, a series where we've been talking about the reality that though the Bible is made up of all these different chapters and verses and genres and written by different authors, it's actually just telling one overarching story about who God is, what he's done for us in Christ, and how that changes who we are and how we're called to live. And um, if you haven't been with us, just a quick recap. In week one, we talked about uh, creation, how whenever God uh, created the world, he created it good, and he placed man in the middle of the garden uh, to enjoy his good creation and to worship him as their creator, who is the giver of all good gifts. And then God gave them a mandate. He said that I have created you to help rule uh, the world under my authority. Um, And whenever God says I've created you to rule the world, that doesn't mean to dominate it. That means to care for and to cultivate it. Um, And so that was the mandate. That was the call to Adam and Eve. However, we saw in week two that it it does not take very long before Adam and Eve blow it, right? They decide they can rule the world better than God. And so they actually believe a lie from the serpent that they know better than God does. And they eat of a tree God told them not to eat of. And immediately, uh, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, we had, uh, as a result, death and disease, and destruction, and and dysfunction, and all sorts of other uh, brokenness. But God, we saw in week three, did not give up on humanity despite our sin against him. And so he comes to this imperfect man by the name of Abraham, who was known as a pagan worshiper um, in his past. But God comes to him and says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to create a new nation, the nation of Israel. What we have to understand today, the whole point was not Israel. The point was raising Israel up, this new nation, to bless the nations. And so he says, through this nation, I'm going to give you, uh, Abraham, a lot of people. I'm going to give you a place, a new land, and I'm going to give you uh, my presence so that you can be a light into the world. But as we read throughout the entire Old Testament, I mean, it's just disaster after disaster after disaster as uh, Israel chooses to do what's right in their own eyes. God should have given up on them at that point, but he does not. Eventually we see in week four that uh, God sends his own son, Jesus, to enter into humanity through uh, Abraham and his descendants. And Jesus, whenever he comes into the world, his first message is he says, I've come to bring in a new kingdom. I've come in to bring in the rule of God where life is as you were created to experience it. And then uh, on Easter Sunday, we talked about how Jesus began uh, to, to truly bring this about in our lives today through living a perfect life we could never live and then die in a death that we all deserve to die for our sins against God. And then, right, he rose from the dead. Uh, he conquered the serpent uh, who, who brought this whole thing down in Genesis 3. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell itself. And then he told the church, as we looked at last week, that it is your job now to take this good news forward. He says, I'm going to empower you with my Holy Spirit to be my witnesses, to be my ambassadors, to live in such a way that you can see my kingdom come, my will being done on earth, just as it is in heaven. And so that's where we ended last week, but that's not where the story of God ends. Because if we continue to read, what we see is in this story is there's this beautiful progression that takes place. What starts with the garden ends with the garden city. Uh, What starts with the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil ends actually with two trees of life. What starts with God walking in the garden with just two human beings ends with God's presence being fully manifested among all of humanity who has trusted in him. In the beginning, we see God commanding humans to rule the world well. And then we see in the end of time that humanity is ruling and reigning with Jesus forever in this perfect kingdom. 
The story starts with the marriage between Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage between Christ and the church, between heaven and earth, between Adam and Eve and heaven and earth all becoming one, right? It's a beautiful marriage in the end. And so what I want to do is in our time together, I want to focus on the end of the story of God as we come to an end in our sermon series. And so Revelation 21 is where we're going to read. I want to read verse 1 through verse 8, and then we'll dive into it. Uh, This is John speaking here. He's been exiled on the island of Patmos, and he's been given a revelation from God about the end of times. And here's what John reports that he saw. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy, holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you so much for each person who is here today. I know that no one is here by accident. Um, We did not drive through the floody waters through the storm uh, just to hear um, somebody ramble or just to sing a few songs like we need our hearts transformed by you we know that we need something beyond ourselves and that's why we're here and so holy spirit do what only you can do arrest our attention set our hearts on you and transform us from the inside out it's in Jesus' name that we pray amen Amen. hey by a show of hands how many people in here grew up in sunday school raise your hand Sunday school, okay? Lots of people in the religious South. Okay, real quick, uh, of those of you that grew up in Sunday school, how many of you had a felt board in your Sunday school class? Okay, quite a few of you. Um, the 80s were not the 80s without a felt board in Sunday school class, were they? Um, now, if you don't know what a felt board is, this is it right here, by the way. Julie, I think we should make it a requirement that every one of our teachers should wear one of those blazers in children's church. And so I don't know if you make that happen. But... Um, the felt board was great, right? It was just this light blue felt board with these, and I mean incredibly realistic looking Bible characters. Um, I know you're not supposed to know what Jesus looked like, but I knew exactly what Jesus looked like whenever I was growing up. Um, despite the fact that the Bible said he was a Middle Eastern man, uh, the felt board told me he was Swedish. And so uh, he had uh, blonde hair, he had blue eyes, and of course, he wore a white robe because he was one of the good guys. Um, you know, if you're a bad guy like the Pharisees, of course, and, and Judas Iscariot, that's right, it was black and a red sash, right? Not a blue sash. And so, which is funny, by the way, if you think about it, because, side note, um, the disciples didn't even know Jesus was a, or Judas was a bad guy, but a bunch of seven-year-olds could know that. Cause you're like, hey, who's the bad guy? Like, clearly, the guy wearing all black who looks like a creep, right? He's got the evil look on his face. Like, he is a bad dude. So we all love the, the felt board, right? I mean, the felt board was great. Um, it helped write basically the Bible to come to life. And so I especially love the felt board on the day that Miss Willis, my Sunday school teacher, tried to explain to us 
heaven. And, uh, you know, my dad pastored a little country church my whole life. We didn't have a lot of money or a lot of nice things, um, you know. Um, and so, like, you know, our teacher just did the best she could with the, the little pieces of felt she had. So basically, to, to make the scene of heaven, she had some clouds and the sun, and that was it. And so she was like, well, kids, heaven is, uh, here's heaven. And she like, grabs a kid, like a little uh, Bible character, and she's like, it's beyond the clouds and beyond the sun, and there somewhere up there is heaven. And, of course, we're all like, it's, it's, really, it's really high up there. She's like, yeah, it's really high up there. And then, of course, we're like intrigued. And we're like, well, what else can you tell us about heaven? And she's like, uh, and you can tell like immediately like, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't know a whole lot more about heaven. And she's like, well, uh, there's lots of gold, kids, lots of gold. And like, in fact, there's so much gold, the streets are made of gold. We're like, are you kidding me? Like, the streets are made of gold? You know, and then she's like, yeah, 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 and the sea is glass. Like, it's glass. That's amazing. Like, that's incredible. Like, what else can you tell us? And eventually she's like, I think we're out of time, you know? Like, we need to wrap it up and, and get on. And so, like, obviously our Sunday school teacher, um, I mean, she's just serving, doing her good deeds. She doesn't have a theology degree, right? And so when she's asked about heaven, she doesn't really know uh, what to say. And I'm not saying that to pick on her. I mean, the reality is she represents a lot of Christians, I would think, in the world. If, if, you know, if you were to ask somebody, maybe even you, like, hey, what do you know about heaven? You would kind of get a blank stare. Maybe, you know, I mean, you might kind of be able to stumble around a little bit. For, but for the most part, when we think of heaven, we just think of all the cliches, don't we? I mean, we think of, uh, you know, fluffy clouds and chubby babies. Um, we think of, of just singing in a choir or like kind of floating around on a cloud and just playing a harp. And uh, the problem with this cartoonish version of heaven is, listen, the problem with this cartoonish version of heaven is not only that it's not biblical, it's just not fun. Right? I mean, how many of you right now are sitting here saying, you know, I cannot wait to die. I I cannot wait to die because I just, for all eternity, I just cannot wait to sing nonstop just praise songs over and over again. I I, I mean, for most of us, not only are are our ideas of heaven wrong, they're just not exciting. Right? I mean, they're not relevant, they're not helpful, they're not powerful, they're not compelling, and therefore, because we, sca- we carry this skewed view of heaven in our minds, what happens is we end up missing out on the power and the hope that we need to make it in this life today. And that's why C.S. Lewis says the following, and I'll put the quote on the screen for you. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that we have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. For some of you this morning, heaven is nothing more than just this ambiguous pipe dream. It's an, it's an afterthought. I mean, sure, like you have some sort of a concept of heaven in your mind. It's kind of like this pie in the sky, sweet by and by type thing. But listen, when you think of heaven, you imagine it in a way that neither the Bible or your heart really desires. And the problem with this is, according to C.S. Lewis, is without a proper meditation on the next life, we will never truly be effective in this life. And therefore, as we come to an end in the story of God, I want to take time just to focus on this place called heaven. But before I dive in, let me just say this. Maybe you're here this morning and you kind of got duped into coming. Maybe you're not a Christian. 
Uh, maybe you don't even believe there's a God. Um, first off, let me just say this. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, fellowship is a place where you can belong before you believe. You can bring your doubts. You can bring your questions. Those will not be held against you. You will not be looked at in some sort of a negative way. So I'm glad that you're here. But what I want you to do as we talk about heaven is, is for you, I get it. I get it. Like it seems like a fairy tale. Um, but what I ask of you is, in this message is, is this. At least keep an open mind. Maybe you don't believe there's a heaven, but at least admit you wish it was true. At the very least, in your heart, there's something in you that when I'm going to be talking about this today, you're going to say, man, I hope this is true. I wish this would be a reality. And what I want to submit to you this morning is the reason that desire is there is for a reason. It's because you have not come from just nothing. You are here for a purpose, and God has placed within you a desire for this very thing called heaven, and he actually has provided a way for you to experience it. So just keep an open mind. It's all I ask of you this morning. The truth is, despite what you see going on around you, history is not spinning out of control. The Bible is clear that one day Jesus will come back and he will bring about a dramatic judgment where those who have not trusted in Jesus, who have chosen to go another way, will spend an eternity in a real place the Bible calls hell. And those who have trusted Jesus will spend an eternity in this perfect kingdom that Jesus is establishing. And in this new kingdom, the Bible says in Revelation 7, 9, it will be filled with so many people that we will not even be able to count the number that is there. And of the multitude of people who will be there, Revelation says that there will be people that are represent from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In other words, listen, there is plenty of room for you in heaven. There's plenty of room for you there. There's room for your story. There's room for your race. There's room for your background. There's room for your longings. There's room for, for, for all of you. You do not have to go to hell. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to go to this place that John speaks of right here in verse 8 as the lake of fire. I don't care what you have been told in the past. Hell was not made for you. It wasn't. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says hell was made for the devil and his angels. Now, do we deserve hell? Absolutely we do. Even on our best Days, But you know what is great about the gospel? Jesus came to give us something we don't deserve. Jesus came down from heaven to earth to give us his very self. And so listen, no matter who you are or where you come from or how evil you think you may be, you were not made for hell. You were made for God. God loves you this morning, no matter who you are. And he doesn't just love you, he likes you. Like he enjoys you. He's excited about you and he wants you to spend eternity in heaven with him. So what exactly is this place like? Let's try to get down to the bottom of this. Fortunately, the Bible tells us what heaven is like. If you look again in verse 1, John the Revelator reports this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and the sea was no more. Now when I read that uh, when I was younger, the sea was no more, I immediately thought heaven must be pretty lame because I love going to the beach as a kid. Um, I love fishing with my grandparents. I always, when I went to the beach, even thought like, man, I hope one day I can surf whenever I'm in heaven, right? I hope I can just fish and all those things. But then I read the sea's no more. And I'm like, wow, like heaven sounds great already. Like no water, no beach, right? So I was like immediately like, that doesn't sound that 
great. But what you have to understand is whenever John says the sea will be no more, he's not speaking in a literal sense. He's using metaphorical language that made sense in the context of what people would read in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 57, 20, it says this, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest and whose waves cast up mire in mud. All through the Old Testament, whenever someone wanted to talk about war or chaos or turmoil, often they would use this imagery of the sea. And that's the exact same thing that John is doing right here in Revelation 21. What he is saying is when he says the seas will be no more, he's not saying the water will be no more. He's saying there will be no more tornadoes. Can I get an amen from somebody on that? He's saying there will be no more floods. He's saying when he says there's going to be no more seas, like there's going to be no more terrorism attacks. That's what he's saying. There's not going to be any more chaos. There's not going to be any more war. There's not going to be any more dysfunction or fighting or turmoil. In fact, in verse 25 of this chapter, he says, In heaven, the gates will never be shut. Why does he say that? Because heaven doesn't have to shut the gates because there's no threat of an attack, right? There is zero things to worry about in heaven. Heaven is a place, John says, where chaos will be replaced with order. He says, heaven is a place where war will be replaced with peace. And things like fear and anxiety and defensiveness will all be replaced with an eternal rest. Isn't that great? And if that's not good enough, he goes on to say in the next few verses that heaven will also be a place that is filled with this unending love and an unshakable joy. Look in verse 2. He says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Um, I wish I had time to preach more on this. I don't. A lot of times we hear growing up that, that when we die or at the end of times we're going to go to heaven. The Bible never speaks of us going to heaven. It speaks of heaven coming to us. Just like right here. It's what John sees. Heaven's coming down to us. That's why Jesus said, pray, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you can just kind of put that in your back pocket, think about it, whatever you want to do with it later. But he said, I saw the, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then look at this beautiful language prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven is going to feel like a romance. Heaven is going to feel like the perfect wedding day where by God's grace, we are going to be beautiful, we're going to be ravishing, and we're going to actually finally be able to receive the love of God. He is going to fix his loving eyes on us and we will not turn away in embarrassment. You ever thought about how hard it is right now to just receive love? Something we were made for and something that's so hard for us to do. I did an exercise with our missional community leaders a couple months ago for this very reason. Where I went around to every MC leader and I placed my hand on their shoulder and I spoke a blessing from God to them. And as I did this, one by one... You would see as they all kind of begin to go, right? Like, didn't really want to look. And you, I asked them after it was over, like, hey, how did you feel when I was doing that? And here was the response. Awkward, right? Anxious, right? Nervous. Why is that? Because sin has brought shame and guilt and all of these things in our life that keep us from really being able to receive true, authentic love. In heaven, that will be no more. In heaven, you will finally be able to receive the love you were longing for from God. And it goes on. It gets even better. Not only will we receive this love for all eternity, but he says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And look at this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Despite popular belief, when Jesus returns, he will not delete nature. He will renew nature. Uh, When Jesus returns, he will not wipe out all the cultural differences we see today. He will not wipe out all of the good progress that man has made throughout time. God, when he created us, he gave us the ability to create and cultivate. And that was not just for the heck of it. Whenever Jesus returns, he's not going to be like, hey, all that good stuff you did, all that culting and, and, and all that culture making, like that's just... Forget all that stuff. Now, all of that, according to Revelation 21, verse 26, will make it into heaven. We will have different cultural expressions from different nations from throughout different times in heaven. And so what that means is this. In heaven, we will have art. In heaven, we will have technology. In heaven, we will have buildings. In heaven, we will have food. In heaven, we will have music. Amen? Music lovers, like good music from things, I think, like Mozart to Motown. Like it will all be in there. It's not going to be done away with. All the great stuff we love here will be there. But you know what the difference is? It'll be perfected and purified. That's the difference. And therefore, everything that we do, everything that we do will create in us an unshakable joy in our hearts that then moves towards into this expression of worship towards God. And that's what John is getting at right here. When he says in verse 1 that the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, he doesn't mean that everything as we know it will just be wiped out. And we know that is true because if we continue to read as we did in verse 4, he says all the former things will pass away. Well, what is he talking about by former things? It's not the art and the music and the technology and all that. When he says it will all pass away, what does he mean? Tears will be no more. Death, crying, mourning, pain. All that will be left is just an eternal joy with never-ending happiness. There is coming a day, John says, where the Lord will take away all of your sorrows. Some of you have suffered immensely in this earth, and one day in heaven, all sad things will come untrue. That is our future. There's coming a day where everything will be restored to its original beauty and its original power only better than ever before because nothing will ever break down again. Nothing will ever wear down. Everything will radiate and every single person who trusts in Jesus will reign with him for all eternity. That is why Paul in Romans 8, after seeing a glimpse of heaven, says, I consider the sufferings of this present world aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. Paul suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. I can promise you. He gets one little glimpse of heaven, and he says, all that suffering, man, it's literally, it's like, it's like, it's not even a drop compared to the ocean of God's glory and goodness and beauty. All that stuff that you're so stressed about right now, it will not be a big deal to you at all. It will be swallowed up. It'll be swallowed up by the beauty of God and the overflow of his perfections. Heaven is something we all long for. We all do. Heaven is something we all need, 
And what's so great about the gospel is all we have to do to experience is simply believe Jesus is who he says he is and has done everything that he says he's done through his life, death, and resurrection. You believe in Jesus today, you trust in him with this life, you can know that your future, no matter what's going on right now, your future is incredibly bright. And that's good news. But maybe for some of you, you know, and I, and I get it, you're sitting here this morning, you're like, okay, that all future stuff's great, but what about today? Because I still have to go back to work tomorrow. I still have to deal with the sickness that the doctor has diagnosed me with. I still have to deal with crazy kids. I still have to pay taxes. Right? The list goes on and on and on. So, so, Jared, what does this have to do? How does this view of heaven help me today? And I'm going to be very clear by focusing on heaven, by meditating on the afterlife, it will not protect you from pain and suffering. It will not. By focusing on heaven, it will not keep you from experiencing hardship and loss. But listen, it absolutely will help you endure those things. So many people in the Bible Belt, listen to me carefully. So many people in the Bible Belt think they are Christians. But when you look at their lives, this existence right now is their one shot at real happiness. You look at their lives and you see how they spend their time and their money and what consumes their thoughts. It is all towards things that will be in a graveyard or a junkyard 50 years from now. And if that's you this morning, no shame, no guilt. But listen to me carefully. What are you going to do when you bury that person who you're putting all your hope in? What are you going to do? Like, how are you going to handle that? How are, you, how are you going to handle whenever this thing that you're working so hard to get that you begin to believe, if I can just get this, I will be fulfilled? What are you going to do when that actually escapes you? Because the reality is, like, you were made for heaven. You were made for God. That is why in Ecclesiastes 3.11, <clears throat> Solomon says that God has placed eternity in your heart. That thing that you're longing for right now, that you're looking for in sex, that you're looking for in drugs, that you're looking for in a career, that you're looking for, there's a reason why. Like, like, there's a reason why you're longing for all those things, but then after you get them, you know what happens? You get there, and you're like, okay, I finally got it, but then like, you feel like you're hitting the ceiling. It's like, okay, there's got to be more. There's got to be more right in the bar. There's a reason why that is. You were longing for something beyond the sun. You were longing for heaven. You were longing for God. He is the one whom you are made for. And therefore today, my exhortation to you is please do not settle for mud pies when there is a vacation at sea to rob from C.S. Lewis's language Jesus has promised you that if you trust him in this life you will get an eternal and unshakable joy in the next life if you choose to follow Jesus in this life will you lose some things yeah you might lose some time at the river I don't know you may lose some money that you wanted to, to use to buy a new living room set or that new car. You may uh, lose some time to catch up on Netflix. Um, you may lose some time to play fantasy sports or to fish or to hunt. But in the end, if you think about it, you actually don't lose anything except for eternal damnation. That's the trade-off. In the end... All you lose is nothing, and all you gain is absolutely everything. That is why the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can you say that this morning? 
Can these words be your words? When you think about life right now, can you say, man, life is all about Jesus. And if I die, that's winning the lottery. I was thinking this past week, you know, I was, um, I was showing my kids a Bible project video, and they just released a new one on heaven. And I was showing my kids the, the one on heaven, and um, after we got done, Wyatt, he, he had some questions, and, and we're talking about death, and my, my son Wyatt turns four on May 20th, and so my daughter was there, and, and we were talking, and, and Wyatt said, to dad, he said, uh, Daddy, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He said, am I going to die? I said, yes, son, you're going to die. He said, is Moses, that's our, our, our four-month-old, is Moses going to die? I said, yeah, Moses will die one day. I said, are you and mommy going to die? Yeah, we'll all die, son. And he just begins to tear up. He said, I don't want anybody to die. And I said, son, well, when we die, life is going to be even better because we're going to be with Jesus and we're going to be able to experience his presence. And, 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 and he looked at me and he was like, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be with Jesus. I don't want him to take me. I don't want to die. Like, 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 he could not imagine in his mind heaven being any better than a Tonka monster truck. He could not imagine heaven being any better than getting to play in his little dirt pile in the backyard or heaven being any better than pizza rolls. And we look and we kind of giggle and we think like, oh, that's kind of funny, kind of silly. But is that not the same thing we do as adults? It's just that we've learned to hide it because we know better than to say that if you're Christians, that this life is better than the next life. But by how some of us are living, we sure live that way. We live as if this really is all that there is. Listen, most of you know my story. Grew up in a church, didn't become a Christian until I was 20 years old. And the way I became a Christian, what God used is He used the testimony of Bart Millard, who's the lead singer for Mercy Me. I never even listened to the band Mercy Me, but I just so happened to, to be in the right place at the right time. And he began to, to share his story in his concert. He was singing praises to God. He just began to share his story and how his father had just passed away, passed away two weeks earlier. And as he's talking about his father's death and just how horrific that all was, in the midst of that, I. I just saw this joy in his eyes that I did not know. I mean, I just lost my girlfriend who I'd been with for two years and thought that I would have to, like, end my life because I was so depressed. This guy just lost his dad, and he's got joy in the midst of grief, and he's singing praise songs to Jesus. And in that moment, I realized I do not know the real Jesus. I don't know that God. Maybe that's where you are this morning. I mean, if you think about it, there's no joy in your life right now. There's no peace. And it's because, for some of you, you're living for the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God. You're here today and you're not generous. Maybe you give, but begrudgingly. You don't really love others well. And even whenever you do serve others, it's out of this, this feeling of, I hope that someone pays attention or they pat me on the back or I get some sort of you know, recognition for this. For some of you in here, you love creation so much more than the creator that whenever the creation is threatened, you begin to curse the creator for it. Some of you are living for the kingdom of the world rather than the kingdom of God. You're settling for mud pies when there is a vacation at sea. The good news is you can be like Bart Millard. There's nothing different between him and you. Nothing. Like Bart Millard, you can learn to sing even in the storms of life. And you can begin to live in such a way that other people are impacted for the glory of God by how you live. And that really is why we're left here on earth, by the way, to live in such a way to give people a taste of what the kingdom of God is like. 
to live as these movie trailers that give just a taste of what the main feature is going to be like. That can be you. That can be your life. And it's actually what you have been called into. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, seek first what? The kingdom of God. And all these things that you're worried about, and he names like the, like the basic necessities of life. You would think, I should be worried about that. All these things that you're worried about and the, the world is worried about, listen, it'll all be added to you. Just seek first my kingdom. Many of you know that verse. You can quote that verse. But the question is, how does that verse become alive in your heart to where you begin to live as a kingdom-minded person now? And this might seem like an overly simplistic answer to you, but it's where the power is. If you want to truly set your mind and live with the power that is yours when you focus on the next life, you need to learn to preach the gospel to yourself every day in this life. It's not just those people who need the gospel We need the gospel. And what is it specifically about the gospel that we need to focus on? Well, as we end this morning, John tells us in verse 6. We'll look here and we'll be done. Revelation 21, verse 6. He says, he looks and behold, and God said this, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Some of you may remember the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus went to the woman at the well who was known as the, as the town whore. And I don't use that word lightly. Like That's what she was known as. She was a social outcast. She was jumping from man to man to man to man to try to find satisfaction. It was a scandalous thing. Jesus should not have been a Jewish man approaching her in the middle of the day, but he didn't care what others thought. So he approaches this woman and he says to her, Hey, I know what you're looking for. And it's not found in all these other men. It's found in me. And me is the living water. And if you will drink of it, you will never thirst again. That's the same promise he makes to you and me today. And we know he's good on that promise. You know how we know he's good on it? Because eventually he went to the cross. And before he died, he said, I thirst. That was not just a physical thirst. That was a cosmic thirst that Jesus experienced. The cosmic thirst that we deserve for our sins so that we could receive the living water without cost or payment. So that we, when we trust in him, can have the deepest desires of our hearts fulfilled in the river of life that John says runs right down Main Street in the new heavens and the new earth. If you believe that, like if you savor that, I promise you guys, it will begin to overturn and overrule your selfish desires. And we'll learn how to relax We'll learn how to rejoice. We'll learn how to hope. We'll learn how to love. We'll learn how to serve. And we'll even learn how to suffer without freaking out. My, um, my grandpa suffered more than I think anybody else that I know in my own family. And uh, he, he fought in World War II and had to kill when he was in World War II. He was almost killed himself. Actually received a Purple Heart and was in the hospital for six months from his injuries in California after he was uh, sent back from the Lady Islands in the Philippines. And, uh, man, I mean, he just had all sorts of issues. Uh, developed tropical malaria when he was over there, and that plagued him most of his life. He had two open-heart surgeries. He had cancer that would come and go, come and go. Suffered immensely. And he always had this just joy in about him, you know? And uh, one of the things he would say all the time is, hey, the best is yet to come. He'd say that every time. Get cancer, hey, the best is yet to come. Got to have another open heart surgery, James. Uh, the best is yet to come. He said over and over and over. And he believed that, even on his deathbed, 
uh, within just, I think, probably a couple hours before he died, his last words, families around him, he hadn't spoken in three days. And all of a sudden, he opens his eyes and he says, Amazing. And he closed his eyes and he died. But before he died, my grandma looked, she said, I be. But she called him, she said, oh, What's amazing? And all he said was, He just said, God. And he died. Listen, take that whatever you want, but you know who you should listen to? You should listen to dying people. Because they've counted the cost and they begin to let go of the world. They're thinking about eternity. You know who else you should listen to? You should listen to resurrected people. And when Jesus says, just as I've come, I'm coming again. And when I do, I'm going to make all things right. You should take that to heart. And allow it to transform you from the inside out. Guys, Jesus is offering us all something today that the world cannot offer. The government can't offer it to you. Your spouse can't offer it to you. Your job can't offer it to you. Your kids can't offer it to you. Your pastor can't offer it to you. Jesus is offering it to you right now. You can receive it without payment because of his payment.